Well, it's good to be together this evening. It's good to look across the congregation and see familiar faces. Uh, it's great to look across the congregation and see some faces that I'm not familiar with. Uh, that's great because that means that there have been folk who uh, uh, are new to the church or new to this group of churches, and that's, that's wonderful. So it's great to be together uh, this evening, and uh, I do trust that the Lord would bless us as we consider His Word uh, together this evening. So if you have your Bibles with you, and I also would echo your words, I trust you do have, please would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and uh, reading from verse 1, we're going to be looking at Paul's prayer uh, for the church at Philippi, really contained in verses 3 through to verse 11. In fact, the prayer itself is contained in uh, mainly in verses 9 to 11. Let us read together from verse 1. Paul, I, I, by the way, I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, which reads, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, as we come to your word this, this evening, we pray that you, by your grace, would speak to us, that you would speak by your spirit, that we, Lord, may be granted open ears, open minds, and above all, open hearts, to receive your word this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, it really is a privilege for me to be able to start our series uh, this evening on the prayers of Paul for the various churches. And it's a great privilege because it's such an important subject, the whole subject of prayer. We know that uh, James tells us in James chapter 5 that uh, prayer, the prayer of a righteous man or the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective, uh, effective in its power. We know if you just turn back a page in your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 6, it is 
probably the most important weapon in our arsenal. Paul, as he speaks about the uh, armor of God, putting on the full armor of God, he describes putting on every one of those pieces of armor. And then in verse 17, he says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, And then he says, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. Stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known uh, with boldness the mystery of, of the gospel. Everything that Paul is saying in terms of putting on the armor of God, he's saying basically you need to put every single piece of that armor on with prayer. Uh, It is the overarching uh, weapon that we have in our arsenal. And yet, and yet, there is such poverty in prayer. If you look across the churches, there is poverty in prayer. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, do we as Christians actually believe what the scriptures say about prayer? The importance of prayer, the power of prayer. Do we actually believe it? I'm not talking about just paying kind of lip service to it. I'm thinking about, do we really believe it? And I'm sure if I ask all the pastors here this evening, uh, which of the meetings of the church is the least well attended they will all agree it's the prayer meeting that is the least well attended. So, so why is it that we as Christians don't pray? And it's for that reason that it's a joy for me to kick off this evening just by looking at this letter of Paul's, the prayer uh, of Paul's for the church at Philippi, because this is the joyful epistle. Uh, you go through this epistle and Paul is repeatedly saying, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And It's just an epistle full of joy. In fact, he says in verse 4, he's always praying with joy for the church at Philippi. And here's the point. People will gravitate to what they enjoy. People will do the things that they enjoy. I don't know if I've ever really heard anybody ever say to me that what they do for enjoyment is pray. Those are not two words that you generally hear in a sentence together. Prayer and enjoyment. Yes, we might say uh, we enjoyed a great time of prayer last night in our prayer meeting. But you don't go and say to somebody, well, what do you do for enjoyment? And they turn around and say, well, I pray. That's what I do for enjoyment. Yet Paul says, I pray with joy. And I think the reason for me, one of the reasons, there's many reasons why people are not praying. But one of the reasons why people are not praying is because we don't really know how to enjoy praying. We don't do it for enjoyment. And I think we need to come to the place where we learn how to pray with joy. And so Paul, as he writes to the church at Philippi, this joyful epistle, he is joyful in his prayer as he's praying for them. And I'm convinced that we can learn a number of good reasons and a number of good uh, ways in which we can be uh, joyful in, in our prayer and the way in which we can enjoy uh, prayer. You know, you enjoy speaking to people whose conversation uh, you appreciate. But we need to realize that when we come to the whole matter of conversing with God, there is a sense in which this is not just something that comes naturally to us in terms of enjoying it. Why? Well, because God is so other. 
There is a sense in which uh, talking to your wife or to your husband or to your children or to your brother or sister or friends and so on comes naturally because you're on the same page in so many issues and so many ways. But when it comes to God, our reference points are so different. God is so different to us. Uh, For us as mere mortal human beings bound by space and time, To be able to converse with the God who is limitless, who is not bound by space or time, who is all-knowing, all-seeing, the one who is spirit, uh, it's a whole different thing. It's like an ant trying to speak to a whale. It's it's, it's awkward. It's strange. So how do we overcome that to be able to turn our prayers into prayers of joy? You see, I want to tell you, we wouldn't even be able to start praying The only reason we can converse with God, the only reason we can pray is because God has accommodated himself to us. It's not because we can reach up to him. I think one of the things that for me anyway is this, is sometimes I'm trying too hard in prayer to kind of impress God and try to converse on his level. God is not expecting me to converse on his level. He's the one who reaches down to us. Uh, And I love that picture of God stooping down to look at the universe that he has made. How glorious and how big is our God. Well, having said that, what can we learn about praying with joy from Paul's letter or Paul's prayer for the Philippians uh, this evening, and I really want to consider it under two major headings this evening. First of all, I want us to consider how Paul prays, and then I want us to consider what Paul prays. And in verses 3 to 6, we really see the answer to the question of how Paul prays. In verses 9 to 11, we will see what he prays, but in verses uh, 3 through to 6, we see how he prays. And, and I've just noted six features, six characteristics of Paul's praying. And let me go through them uh, and I'll try not to be too long on them. This is a passage that could take us all night, but we won't be like Paul and let you fall out of windows this evening. The first thing that I want you to notice about Paul's prayer is it's unselfish. It's absolutely unselfish. Think about the circumstances that Paul was in when he writes this letter to the church at Philippi. Paul is a prisoner, a prisoner of Rome. In fact, as you read the letter, you see that he is under the palace guard or the praetorian guard, the imperial guard, as some translations puts it. Verse 13 in the CSB reads, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Here is Paul, he's a prisoner. And uh, he's awaiting judgment. As you read the letter, you see that. He uh, is waiting for the sentence to be passed on on him. What are they going to do with him? And the fact is, friends, a very real possibility is that he can be put to death. That's not just a kind of an out there hypothetical thing. It is very real. If you look down at verses 20 to uh, 24 of chapter 1, We see Paul says that uh, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
And then he goes on, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So here is Paul. He's facing this reality uh, of death. He will later on say, I'm about to be poured forth like a libation offering. He expects death at many uh, circumstance at many levels here. Not only is he in this prison and perhaps under the sentence of death, but Paul is also facing all kinds of malicious attacks while he is in prison. Uh, you look at down at verse 17. He says that there are those who are proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, not, sinc- not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. They're not just happy that I'm sitting here in prison. These guys are really stirring the pot. They're out there stirring up whatever trouble they can just to make my imprisonment uh, more serious and to actually uh, forward the notion that I should be put to death. Now, in that circumstance, what would you expect from the Apostle Paul? As he writes to the church at Philippi. Well, in the first place, I want to say, I don't even know if I would expect him to write to them. I think the Philippians would have sent this gift to him because that's what he's doing. He's writing a letter to say, thank you for the gift you've sent me. I can imagine the Philippians were kind of sitting there saying, well, we probably won't get a thank you from Paul under the circumstances. And that's fully understandable. I mean, Paul's got so much pressure and there's so much on his mind at this point in time. So uh, we would excuse him for not writing. Uh, if he did write, I'm pretty sure if I was in the church at Philippi, I would expect a whole list, a whole menu to be coming from Paul saying, please pray for me in this, pray for me in that, pray for me in the next thing, uh, because these are the situations I'm facing. This is the difficulty. So please, would you pray for me? But that's not what he does. Paul writes to them and he tells them that he is praying for them. Maybe the reason why our prayers are not so enjoyable is because our prayers are so focused on ourselves. To use Paul Tripp's words, uh, we shrink our own, when we, when we focus on ourselves, we, we shrink our world uh, to our own little micro kingdom of one. Rather than seeing the big picture and living for the glorious kingdom of God, we shrink it down here. Paul is not a man whose prayers are really bound by I, me, and mine. As so many of ours are. Paul prays for them. He hasn't shrunk his kingdom down to himself. His passion is for the kingdom of God. Secondly, I want to say that Paul prays joyfully. And we've already seen that. Verse 4, he says he prays with joy. And again, how surprising is that? Here he is in these difficult circumstances and yet he's praying with joy. We might have understood him saying, uh, you know, when things have really been going well for me, then it's been wonderful to pray for you because then I can pray with joy. But right now, I'm under such difficult circumstances that when I pray for you, uh, brothers and sisters, you will excuse me for the fact that it's just a quick SOS that I'm sending up to the Lord on your behalf. 
No, says Paul. I am praying with joy. And the reason he can pray with such joy is because of their partnership with him in the gospel. There we have it in verse 5. He says, he prays with joy for you all in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says something similar again in verse 7 where he says, Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me both in grace and in my imprisonment. They are his partners in the gospel. In terms of their salvation, they are his brothers and sisters and he rejoices in that. What a joy it is when we have brothers and sisters that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's joyful because they have been his fellow laborers with him uh, over the years. And if you turn to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, even Euodia and Syntyche were fellow laborers with him. I urge you, Odia and, and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. His joy. What no one can take from us is our relationship with the Lord and what no one can take from us is our relationship one with another if we are in the Lord. He is obviously thankful for their support of his ministry. And that's what he's writing about. And you go to chapter 4 and verses 14 through to 18. So we see Paul is, is joyful. But I think most significantly the joy that uh, Paul has is because of the assurance that he has in the effectiveness of the gospel, in the faithfulness of our Savior, in saving to the uttermost those whom he's called unto himself. So he says to them, he's always uh, praying for them with joy because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You have been persevering. Yours wasn't a uh, once-off quick decision. Yes, I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and next week, well, we don't see you again. These were people who had persevered in the gospel from the first day until now and he goes on and says, because of that, because of their perseverance, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, friends, Paul is absolutely assured of their salvation because he's seen in them their perseverance. This matter of the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. I love what William Hendrickson says about it. William Hendrickson said, divine preservation of the saints for all eternity presupposes their perseverance and their perseverance proves their faith's character that's what paul is saying your perseverance is proving your faith's character from the first day until now and based on that i am sure that he who began the good work in you you didn't begin it he began it he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ hallelujah praise the lord what joy he can pray Thirdly, Paul prays thankfully. 
He is giving thanks to God. Verse 3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Much to be thankful for. I remember Brian Jardine saying, what a lovely gift is the gift of memory. And it is, isn't it? Just as you sit here this evening, just think back a little bit to brothers or sisters that you have known in the faith from many, many uh, years ago. Uh, Just as we uh, came in, uh, I was uh, chatting to my brother uh, he's a Temlet. Now, when we moved down to East London many, many years ago, we met Eric and Bunny Temlet. I still remember them so well. Eric Temlet used to be the mayor of Queenstown many, many years ago. Uh, and uh, he had two sons who were Baptist ministers. And I can still remember Eric Temlet standing before the service in the vestry praying for the service. And he would pray, Lord, would you speak to us? And Lord, would you change us? And these were his words every Sunday he used to say. Because we are epistles known and read of men. You know what? I'm looking forward to sitting with Eric in glory one day and saying, yes, we are epistles known and read of men. How glorious is every remembrance of the saints. And how can we give thanks For the input that Eric had in my life. That Bunny had in in my life. Wonderful isn't it? To just be part of the church. Which is a body that functions together. That serves together. That rejoices together. That builds one another up. And as we come together like this. You are doing things in my life. I'm doing things in your life. And, And one day we will remember these things. And give thanks to God. And we can pray with thanksgiving. The way Paul did. In, in this way. He thanks God for His grace to them. He thanks God for their partnership in the gospel. He thanks God that God is the source of that partnership in the gospel. How we should rejoice, and we do rejoice when we see people coming to salvation. Sue and Shirley just recently had the wonderful privilege of leading a young girl in our church to, to Christ. And uh, what a joy to see this little girl. We've seen her grow from like that. And now she's uh, becoming a young lady and has come to Christ. What a, what a joy. I can remember, and I give thanks to God for every remembrance, those of you from Germiston. I, can, I, I just remember the night I sat with Jabu in my car, a young man who was really, very, very ill. The Lord did what miracles in that young man's life. But that night as I sat with him in the car and he said to me, Pastor, I think I get it now. But tell me, how was Abraham and Moses, how were they saved? And I said to him, Jobu, you've got it now. I know you've got it. And Jobu came to salvation. And what a joy he was. And the folk here at Germiston will be able to testify how that young man who came in, he couldn't even walk. He was in a wheelchair. He was on crutches, went to crutches. But actually couldn't see. He would hold the Bible like that in front of him. He couldn't see. And we saw God heal that young man. He had complete kidney failure. Uh, We saw the Lord do wonderful works in his life. Uh, He died at a young age because of his kidney failure. Went to be with the Lord. But for me, 
he was a true son in the Lord and I give thanks to God. When I pray, I can pray with thanks to God for Jabu and for these people. Fourthly, Paul, I need to move. Fourthly, Paul prays systematically. Again, in verse 4, he says, Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. Now, there's some very important words there. He's always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. So it seems to me that every time Paul prayed, he prayed for them, the Philippian church, and I think he prayed for them individually as individuals by name. Uh, I think he did the same as we were reading from Colossians uh, this evening. We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Uh, it seems to me that Paul didn't just pray haphazardly. There was a system to his prayer. I, I seem to think from this passage that Paul must have had a prayer list and he prayed through that prayer list. He prayed personally for each one of them. It was specific prayer. It wasn't just a kind of a haphazard shotgun approach praying for the Philippians. It was a systematic prayer. Beloved, just a, a week or so ago, one of our elders was uh, sharing and saying, he was telling a story about a pastor that he knew who after he died, his son took his prayer cushion and has kept his prayer cushion, a cushion that was uh, indented from where his dad used to kneel day after day in the early mornings and pray and pray for people. Now, I happen to know who he was speaking about, for those of you who know. Uh, he was speaking about Martin Holt. Uh, Martin Holt was probably one of the uh, four brands. He was one of the leaders in the Reformed Baptist movement in South Africa. The second half of the 20th century, uh, Martin Holt was one of the few who stood alone for the Reformed Baptist movement in South Africa. And God did wonderful things through Martin's ministry. But here was one thing that really characterized Martin's ministry, and that was prayer. Martin used to pray. He was a prayer warrior. He had that prayer cushion and the dents of his knees are still in that prayer cushion. And Martin would pray for people by name. Joel Beakey gives the uh, a testimony of the fact that Martin had asked him for the names of his children. And Joel had given him the names of his children. And he would sometimes speak to, to Joel Beakey over the telephone and he'd say to him, uh, I've been praying for you and your wife and for your children. And Joel Beakey sort of said, yeah, that's great, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. You're <laughs> praying for me and my children, that's great. But after Martin's death, Joel was shown his prayer diary. And there was Joel Beakey's name and his wife's name and his children's name. Praying for somebody right across the Atlantic Ocean. Beloved. Paul prayed systematically. Not only did he pray systematically in that way for people, I think when he says, always praying with joy for you in my every prayer, it seems to me that there was a system to Paul's prayer in terms of, of when he did it and how he did it. He set the time apart. It was a serious time that he got aside with the Lord. And again, I can remember... <clears throat> T.J. Wilson, some of you might remember Tommy Wilson. T.J. Wilson, 
uh, I, I got to know him in East London, and what a he was an old retired minister in those days, but he was ministering, and Tommy could preach. Uh, he, he was a great preacher. had come to a reformed position after he had retired, and he said to me, I'm now making up for the years that the locusts have eaten, and he would preach this reformed doctrine. But you would go to Tommy's house, if you got there before 10 o'clock, uh, his wife would open the door and she would say, uh, if you don't mind waiting until 10, he is busy with his prayer time at this moment in time. He had an appointment with the Lord. And he wasn't going to break that appointment with the Lord to meet me. Praise God for that. Beloved, how serious are we in terms of being systematic about our prayers? The fifth characteristic of Paul's praying I see here is that Paul prayed frequently. Look at verse 3. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. And we read in Colossians, I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Paul was a man who prayed and he prayed often. In fact, I think the question for Paul was not, Paul, when do you pray? I think the question for Paul was, Paul, when don't you pray? A.W. Tozer was asked, they said to him, uh, asked him, Pastor, what do you pray last thing at night? And he said, Lord, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The person said to him, is that all you pray at night? He said, well, that's all I've got left to pray at night. I've been praying all day. And I think that was with Paul. He was praying all the time. And now the point is, if you want to be enjoy praying, friends, you need to get busy with doing it because practice makes perfect, as they say. Uh, whatever you do, it never uh, starts off enjoyable. But the more and more you practice it, the better and better you get at it, the easier and easier it becomes, the more and more enjoyable it uh, becomes. A few years ago, I was told by my doctor I need to do some exercise, otherwise I was in danger of developing type 2 diabetes. And so I thought, well, I'll take up swimming again. And so off I went down to the pool and I thought, oh, I'll just swim 10 laps and that'll be fine of the Olympic-sized pool down in Delville. And I got in and I swam halfway across the first lap and I thought I was going to drown because my breathing was going, <laughs> but I couldn't. I was really in serious trouble and I thought this is terrible, I'm never going to do this again. But over the years I just persevered at it and persevered it and now I really enjoy that swimming. It's the same as running or anything like that and it's the same with conversations, isn't it? Many years ago I worked for a company, we had branches all over the country. I was here at head office and uh, we had a canteen where we would all go and have lunch and uh, the managing director and the marketing director they would come and have lunch with us in the canteen and then we would go through and have some table tennis we'd play table tennis to, together and so it was great i could just chat to them and we spoke very easily and i can well remember uh, some of the branch managers coming from the other branches around the country coming up for meetings 
And they would walk into these same directors' offices and into their presence, and you could see them sort of stumbling and, and, and not no, yes sir, no sir. And it was they were awkward in their presence because they didn't know how to speak to them. And here I was on a lower rung of the ladder than them, and yet I spoke freely to these directors. Why? Because every morning when I got to the office, it was good morning, how are you? Fine. How did the table tennis go last night? And so on and so forth. We spoke to each other. We conversed with each other. We were much in each other's company. And the same thing is with prayer. Beloved, we need to pray frequently if you want to pray joyfully and enjoy praying. Then the sixth point is that he prays intelligently and that will bring us to how he prays or, or what he prays. So if you look down at verses 9 to uh, 11, you'll see the content of uh, his prayer and you'll notice that Paul prays intelligently. It's not uninformed. His uh, prayer is not just a kind of a blanket, Lord, bless the Philippians. Uh, Lord, bless the elders at Philippi. Lord, bless the deacons at uh, Philippi. Now, I don't, I'm not saying here so much about the fact that he probably knew things from them and had asked them, what can I pray for you? He probably did do that. But I want you to notice that Paul's prayers are informed by the will of God. Uh, his prayers are biblically informed prayers. I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. So that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here is Paul praying prayers as you read those. Tell me which one of those things that Paul is praying for there is not as it were an echo of the heart of God. Can you not hear the heart of God praying that their love would keep on growing and so on and so forth? You see, Paul's prayers were intelligent. They were informed by the will and the word and the spirit of God. So that takes us to the second thing and uh, looking at how Paul or what Paul prays rather. And let me say this, Paul prays for love. That's really what you see there in verse 9. He says, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. He prays that their love, obviously for God, and their love for the church and each other, and their love for the lost, will keep on growing. Basically, Paul is praying here according to the royal law. What is the greatest command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like unto it. To love your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul is praying that their love would grow more and more. But notice this. Paul prays this. He prays this really three things about this praying for love. He prays for a love, number one, which is growing. A love which is growing. He, this uh, version says, I pray that your love will keep on growing. I think a more literal translation is that your love will abound more and more. That word abounding is a lovely word. It speaks of overflowing uh, exceedingly. Uh, just like 
the uh, ship that takes on everything that it needs for the voyage that is that is going to set out on. And then the captain says, but hold on a moment, we may not meet favourable weather conditions. So we better just take a little bit more, just in case. And so they add a couple of extra days worth of supplies on board. And then the captain says, uh, but just in case, let us take just a little bit more, until eventually the ship is almost creaking because you've got so much on board. I think that's the one kind of use of this word that uh, Paul might have had in mind, but I think more uh, what would more have been in his mind is the picture of a river which is growing and is abounding and overflowing more and more. So, when I uh, was a young boy, I grew up not far from here, I grew up uh, just on the copies on the other side of the glen. Uh, and from my house, I used to jump over our back wall uh, as a 12-year-old boy, jump over the back wall. I'd meet my friends on the copies and we used to run down the little valley down to about where the glen is now. It's so changed now, I can't really know about it. But we'd run down to about where the glen is in the shadow of Camel's Hump. And there was a place, we called it Poplar Pops. There were a whole lot of poplar trees there. And uh, down this little valley in the summer, when the rain started, the little stream would start to run. And it was great joy for us to watch the stream growing during uh, the summer. And if there had been a great downpour, the stream would actually get quite big. And it would fill little pools. And we could strip off and go and, and swim in those pools. And... I think that's the idea that Paul has here. He wants their love to be moving from being just that little rivulet, that little trickle, to growing into a stream, to becoming a river which then saturates all of the low-lying ground and fills up the pools and waters a dry and thirsty uh, land. A wonderful uh, picture of it just becoming this full-flowing river of love for God and love for His church and love for His people and love for the lost. So in the first place, Paul prays for their love to be a growing love, but he doesn't want it just to be a randomly growing and expanding uh, love. He wants it to be a guided love, so growing and, and guided, because he says, I pray that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of Discernment. Think about knowledge and discernment as being two banks of this river. What Paul is saying is, I want your love to be a love which is guided by a knowledge of God, by a knowledge of His truth. I want it to be growing on the one side by that, but at the same time I want it to be growing in depth of insight, in discernment, as some translations uh, put it. As I say, the two banks of the river. You see, on the one side you've got knowledge which is simply a knowledge of the truth, a knowledge of the facts. But if that's all you've got, knowledge puffs up. And if that's all you've got, it's just a cold, doctrinaire, uh, hard, ungracious, unloving spirit. Paul says, I want that knowledge to be growing. I'd love to be growing with that knowledge. You need that knowledge. In fact, let me say to you, you can't really grow in love for God without growing in knowledge of God. I can't love God more than what I know about God. If I want to grow more in my love for God, I need to know more about God. 
And so you've got to go in that knowledge. But at the same time, there needs to be this other arm to it where there is wisdom and understanding. The Bible speaks of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. So the, the knowledge itself must be kept in check, if you like, by the application of that knowledge with wisdom and, and understanding. So that it doesn't just puff us up. So Paul wants us to grow in knowledge of the Lord, knowledge of the Scriptures, knowledge given to us by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, but he wants us to be growing in understanding and in wisdom of how to apply it, when to use it, how to use it, where to use it. Uh, as you are loving your brothers and sisters, uh, when you have that knowledge and you have that wisdom and understanding, you can love one uh, another. And friends, that is vitally important because, you see, love is not an end in itself because not only does Paul want their love to be growing, not only does it want it to be guided, but I want you to notice that Paul wants their love to be a glorifying love. That's, it's, there's an end to this love. It's not the end in itself. And so he says, uh, so that, I want you, let's read verse 9 again, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying, I, I, I want you to grow in this way. I want this love to be overflowing and, and, and guided in this way. I want it to be so that, number one, you may approve the things that are superior. I really don't know of a great translation of this verse. That you may approve the things that are superior. The Greek word uh, there is a word which means being carried through. Uh, diafreo. Uh, you, 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 you carry something through. I, I think it's you know, like walking through the, uh, or going to the car dealerships. Where you go to the car dealerships, you need to buy a car. And so you go there and you look at all the different cars and you get all the pamphlets and you look at them and you weigh up the pros and cons according to your needs and your requirements. And having come through the whole lot of them, you say, okay, this is the one. And you take that pamphlet and you carry that pamphlet through. And you walk out and say, that's the car that I'm going to buy. Now let me go and see how I can get it. Or the other picture that I have in my mind is, you know, sometimes these people win a shopping spree. He has a thousand rand voucher. Doesn't go far these days. Maybe a two thousand rand voucher from pick and pay. You get given an empty trolley and we want you to run through those aisles and pack into that trolley as much as you can uh, in, in that period and, and get out with those. What are you going to do? You're going to run through and you're going to carry through that which is of most importance to you. And that's what Paul is getting at. As we go through life, Paul wants us, he wants them to be able to be in that position where they pull the right things off of the shelves. In other words, he's saying, I want you to grow in this love, in this way, so that your affections and your priorities 
and your lives may be changed for the better. So that you may be, in the second place, pure and blameless on that day of Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm praying for He's praying for their sanctification. Love is not the, the end. What, what is the, the big issue for Paul is that they will be sanctified in the improved affections, in the approved, improved uh, priorities, so that they may be pure and blameless. He goes on and says, so that they may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. Uh, the, the fruit that grows out of the root of being in Christ. Declared righteous in Christ. Clothed with His righteousness. It doesn't just stop there. That must bear fruit. And Paul's praying that it will bear fruit in their lives. Not so that they can get the brownie points. Not so that everybody can see them walking into church and step back and say, Oh, after you, you are so holy, you are so righteous, you are such a great... Not that at all. Paul prays it. So that Christ Jesus might receive the glory, that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You can't get it by yourself. It comes from Him. It comes through Him. And it is to Him, from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. And to Him and to the glory and the praise of God. Beloved, what a prayer. No wonder Paul is praying joyfully because ultimately he is praying to the glory and praise of God. Do you pray with joy? Perhaps the reason we don't pray with joy is the starting point is wrong. The focus is me. What is God going to do for me? What can I get God to do for me, mine, and mine? No, says Paul. Let's pray unselfishly to the glory of God. So are you praying unselfishly? Are you praying thankfully? Do you pray systematically? Do you pray frequently? Do you pray intelligently and biblically? Because ultimately, we are to be praying to the praise of His glory. And if I can end it with this point. I, I owe a great debt of gratitude to John Piper, who has taught me that yes, God wants me to enjoy my life. And the way He wants me to enjoy my life is by enjoying Him. And the way that I will enjoy Him and therefore enjoy my life is when He is made much of. There's the secret for praying with joy. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for the challenge of this passage. We thank you for the challenge of Paul's prayers to us. And indeed, Lord, we have to acknowledge before you tonight that in comparison with this, Lord, our prayers are so poor. Forgive us for that poverty of prayer and help us, Lord, to be those who can truly pray effectively because we are praying joyfully 
because we are praying thankfully and because we are praying gloriously to the praise of your glory and your grace. Amen.